Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today we have a great episode, in my personal opinion. Uh, I interview Jessica Gavin, who we're going to, I'll talk to you about who she is in a second. Uh, We dive into pandas and pans. And I did do an episode on pandas and pans quite a long time ago. Let me see when, what that was. Actually, it was a really long time ago. It was episode 56. This is episode 389. So it was forever ago. I interviewed Beth Maloney about her journey and her book and uh, pandas and pants. So it has been long overdue to come and circle back to this topic and talk about what is pandas and pans. I talk about my own experience and frustrations around my son with pans. And I talked to Jessica Gavin, who has her own experience with pandas and pans. She has three children who suffered mental illness following a common childhood infection. And she talks about her journey and she is a fierce advocate for the recognition and treatment of pandas and pants. And you know, what's so funny is we are recording this October 9th. And she said to me that today was pandas and pants awareness day, which is my son's birthday too, which is kind of weird because he's struggling with pants. Um, but Jessica empowers parents in so many different ways. She founded a 5013C pediatric research and advocacy initiative called PRAI. In under three years, she led the effort to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for research and education through a series of events and recruiting. And she spearheaded the launch of the International Pants Registry. She talks about this in our interview, but to have a registry of people and their siblings with pans and pans-like symptoms so that the scientific community can have opportunities to conduct observational studies is really, really helpful. She was named one of Richmond's top 40 under 40 by Style Weekly for her her leadership and her focus and determination and hard work bringing, I think, just her awareness to all of this stuff. But she is currently working on increasing participation in a phase three ProPans IVIG clinical trial, which is so needed. And we talk about in this interview as well. I do also... Um, kind of bring an alternative view, not really an alternative view, but also sprinkling in a view from the OCD community. I feel like the pandas and pans world is really, and the OCD world are split in two. I feel like it's getting better and it's not really as much, but I feel like it's either, it is either pandas and pans or you're doing OCD and ERP. And I feel like both worlds need to come together. And I see that both as an OCD child therapist and a mom with a child with pans where interventions just haven't really been effective as far as the medical route. We just haven't had any success. Um, how, what do you do with that and how do you deal with it? So we dive very, very deep. It was actually a really great interview. It was nice talking to someone <laughs> about this and you get to eavesdrop into our conversation because it's just two parents and an advocate and an OCD therapist talking about pandas and pans. So obviously we're not here to give you medical advice. We talk about things, but we often preface it with we're not doctors. And so take that with a grain of salt. I would say, you know, look at resources. I always refer people to pandasnetwork.org. She is also helping advocate for the PACE Foundation. And so you can go to their website at pacefoundationforkids.org. And that is the number four. So pacefoundationforkids.org. There is a Pandas Pans IVIG study currently going on through the PACE Foundation. Your child does have to be relatively newly diagnosed. So within a year, you know, if they qualify, they'd be getting free IVG, IVIG, which is very, very expensive and followed by a bunch of researchers, which would actually be pretty amazing. I wish we were not so far out, but our issue started at eight months old. So we'd have to go way back, but she will mention the study and I will leave a link in the show notes as well, but I do want to say it before we even get into it, pacefoundationforkids.org. So check out their resources. Um, There is a link very at the very top of their website to learn more about that study. See if you qualify. Before we dive in another announcement, I am in the middle 
I'm not really right now because I'm recording this like a month ahead of time. I'm super impressed with myself. (laughs) But in your time, I'm actually in the middle of a free series, Survival Tools for Parents Raising Kids with Anxiety or OCD. I actually have a ton of parents that follow me who have a child with pandas and pans or other diagnoses. And so a lot of parents who are dealing with pandas and pans take my free series. And so feel free to join. And what I'm doing in this free series is I'm talking to you about how to create a therapeutic home environment. And regardless of the origin of what is causing the anxiety or OCD at home, we have to, to kind of reshape the way that we view things. And we have to kind of recalibrate our home to create a therapeutic home environment. And what does that look like? And it looks like a whole bunch of different things. I go about this in the series. I start to talk to you about, you know, how to communicate, you know, help your child communicate their struggles. And how do you create an environment of like, when you're dealing with putting out those fires and when your child's wanting you to accommodate an anxiety or OCD issue, or when they don't want to work on their struggles, or how do you deal with the other people in your family, you know, who need attention as well. So all of those things, we talk about that and a lot more. It is free and we are in the middle of it. Today is for you, November 7th, and it's actually October 9th, my time, because I'm like doing really, really well. But so video number two already got released today, but you still have, the series doesn't end until November 10th, 2023, in case you're listening to this in the way future. And it's an on-demand series. And what that means is I will send, you'll sign up for it and then you'll get emails with the video links and those video links for the videos. There's three videos in this video series can be watched at any time during the, during the series. And so you just go to the series website. When you get registered, you get the link to the series website and you can watch those videos and you can watch two of them because two have been released. If you're listening to this, past November 9th, can't be too far past because it ends on the 10th. Actually, there'll be a replay over the weekend. So if you're listening to this on the 11th or 12th of November, you'll still be able to watch the replay of all these. Just register at atparentingsurvivalseries.com. And we also have a Facebook group that's just for the series. And I create it as a temporary Facebook group and then we close it down because I do have a large public Facebook group. So I don't need to have multiple Facebook groups, but I do it just for the series so we can talk about the videos. And I, I do three Facebook lives and those are pinned to the top of that Facebook group in case you did miss some of them or you can't make them live. And I talk, um, I go deeper into the content of each video, which is like motivation, communication, um, how to do exposures at home, all sorts of stuff like that. So I hope that you find it helpful. And if you haven't joined already, join us at atparentingsurvivalseries.com. I also want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They're available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. And I will leave a link in the show notes. Okay, well, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jessica. Well, I want to welcome Jessica to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with maybe you can just in your own words, like give us an introduction. We're going to be talking about pandas and pans, which I'm excited that you're coming on to talk about because I actually got a lot of requests from people wanting more information. And I I did a podcast quite a while ago on it. And so it's just great to bring another expert on to talk about it. But before we jump in, maybe if you can give people a brief understanding of your background and who you are, that'd be awesome. Sure. Um, so most importantly, I'm a mom to three kids with PANS and advocate for the community. So um, what PAN stands for Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome, and then PANDAS is a Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Strep. Um, so it, a child has abrupt onset of, of symptoms of OCD or restrictive eating, tics, um, and then other symptoms have to coincide with it, like ADHD, urinary frequency, emotional ability, and things like that. PANDAS was actually discovered um, before PANS, but it's a subset. And basically, uh, it's this immune reaction that happens. They think it's an autoimmune condition uh, where antibodies, autoantibodies attack the brain when a child has strep throat. 
PANS is the broader kind of term where anything can cause it. So any kind of illness or environmental triggers, allergies, you know, kind of things like that. I think I assume that a lot of people know what PANDAS and PANS is, but they really, there's a lot of people who, most people do not actually. That's kind of why you're on here is to spread this information and give them some understanding. What, let's just start with the very basics. What are some symptoms that parents can watch for? Because I do think that once people hear about it, they think like every parent thinks their child has pandas and pants as well. So there's like this continuum of concern. It's like there's there's parents that really should know about this. And, you know, their kids have clear signs um, in my community. I'll be like, whoa, did you test them for pandas or pants? And they're like, what is that? And I'm like, okay. And then other people where they have very classic OCD symptoms with no real pandas pants symptoms, and they're going through a battery of tests. So let's let's talk about some of the the symptoms are red flags first. It's a little tricky because there has not been enough research on pants and pandas. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, it has not been, you know, wildly embraced or accepted. And it's not what you hear about when you come in with the, you know, symptoms of OCD in in kids. Um, So uh, let me start with what the definition, you know, is of, of pants and pandas, like where the symptoms according to the, you know, the clinical criteria are, right? So one of the classics is abrupt onset. You had a child who didn't have any symptoms prior and they have this abrupt dramatic onset of either OCD or tics or OCD and eating restrictions. So it's it's kind of tricky. It's a, for pandas, you have to have either OCD or tics. And for pans, you have to have OCD and or severe restricted eating patterns, um, along with two other symptoms from this kind of long list of symptoms, which include ADHD, emotional ability, let's see, bed, uh, urinary frequency, uh, sensory processing issues, um, and, and things like that. I think the hard part, I'll play the devil's advocate in this podcast yeah. a little bit, but I think the yeah. hard part too, is like a lot of times OCD appears to be sudden onset, even for those outside of the pandas pans world as a therapist, I know my practice, they'll say it's sudden onset. And then I'll dive into history. And it's like, clearly this child had some compulsive behavior before. It's like, it's just showing up in such a huge way all of a sudden. Yeah. And you know, what's again on the the devil's advocate front, what's kind of interesting is that even in the PANS kids, some of the research is showing that they also had these kind of soft signs of OCD or compulsions in their background, right? So, you know, Stanford did a paper and Stanford is, is probably, I would say, the leading research center for, for kids with pandas and pans. And one of their early papers actually showed that kids that had these um, disorders had some OCD or those soft signs earlier. So, you know, there's it's kind of a question of that abrupt and dramatic. Does that mean abrupt and dramatic? You never had anything in your background or does that mean a severe worsening of symptoms, right? And I don't know that that's been totally clarified. So oftentimes we'll go into a doctor's office and they'll say, oh, well, you had some OCD in the background, you know, so it must not be this because it has to be abrupt and dramatic. But again, some of the early research is showing that even those kids also had some of those soft signs in the background. So I think that's one of the major challenges is that it has not been researched enough to really clarify, you know, and to be able to tell which kids have it and which kids don't. So you have, it's a clinical diagnosis. There is no, you know, test for PANS, which makes things even more tricky without a biomarker of, of kind of seeing who's included and who's not. Yeah. I think that is the trickiest part. I know because my son has PANS, but we'll talk about that as far as what that means, because, and my daughter does not. Although I do feel like, I feel like science will eventually show there's a a huge correlation in inflammation. And I feel like a lot of us that feel like there's a genetic predisposition to our kids having mental health issues actually have a family history of more autoimmune issues and inflammation, and that's how it's showing up. And so a lot of those environmental factors that cause inflammation are also implicated in, you know, OCD issues, because to me, it's not rocket science. It's like, yeah, there's inflammation in the brain these are some of the symptoms that are going to pop up, especially exactly. if it's in the basal ganglia, which is kind of where OCD is sitting. That just mm-hmm. makes sense to me. But I feel like there's just so many different origins of how that inflammation can show up. I guess that's why there's this huge question mark of like, what's causing it or how do we test for it? Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, you you have some of these kids 
who have even the dramatic abrupt onset and you can't find a trigger, right? Like you can't find what caused it. And, you know, there's, you know, maybe no history of OCD, you know, in their family line, it's, but they, you don't know what happened and there was no soft signs earlier. And, you know, but even then, if there's no test for it, right. And it's all a clinical diagnosis and you can't find an infectious trigger, it's, it's hard, right. It's hard to kind of say, well, what do we do now? Right. As far as the, you know, the clinicians go. And yeah. parents, really. Yeah, definitely. I know for my kids, I feel like with my son who was diagnosed with PANS, but like a soft diagnosis, they were like, you know, there's, there's no smoking gun and we really don't know. We didn't find anything in the, in the blood work. He did have Hashimoto's, but his labs are fine now with that. So some autoimmune things, but diagnostically he looks squeaky clean. We're still in the middle of this. We're like in the thick of it, but the PANS diagnosis, I think was because of his history. I think sometimes when you have that severe restrictive eating, that is so severe needing to, you know, consider being G tube. That's kind of where we're at with him right now. And you have severe mood dysregulation. I mean, this is the, I'm just trying to help the audience see like maybe the difference between like, cause I have both, you know? And so, although who knows with my little one, you know, she's not that little, she's actually 12 now, but um, <laughs> you know, urinary incontinence, although that's always been a consistent thing. It's not a sudden thing. ADHD difficulty focus. This is all my pants son, you know, difficulty focusing, even his handwriting, I think at one point went very wonky, which is another sign of pandas. Yeah, pan. That's a big one. Just like inability to kind of focus um, and retain things. And like, so it looked very different to me than my daughter with anxiety and OCD, both my daughters with anxiety. Um, and so I think sometimes looking at that, you know, hearing these symptoms and looking them as like a cluster. Yep. So if parents are hearing this, what would be the first step? Because it's the first thing is like, understanding what it is, which mm-hmm. is mushy, you know, it's like, what is it? You know, because OCD can look like a lot of these symptoms too, which gets tricky. It's it's super tricky. And, and, and not only that, like, I think we're going to find out that pans, right. Is this huge spectrum, right. That mental illness is involved with the, you know, the immune system and inflammation and it's all different flavors of this, you know, full picture of, you know, I listened recently to one of your podcasts, you had on a nutritionist or and I apologize, I can't remember her name. It was one of your last couple of um, episodes. She was talking about all of the things that can cause inflammation, right? And those are all the same things that are causing inflammation in our PANS kids too, right? So, you know, do you call that PANS? Probably not according to the diagnostic criteria, but it certainly appears that, you know, the, the spectrum is so large now and it's kind of like, I think where triggers happen and what your genetics are kind of makes up how it looks different. Right. And again, that's, I keep saying, but that's what makes it tricky, but, but truly that's what makes it tricky with parents. I think kind of look and and decide whether this is for them. One of the most helpful things it has been to talk to other parents who have it. Right. So I think that helps tease out. I know it has did for me, like speaking to other families who went through the same thing and saying, okay, that sounds just like what we went through has been probably the most beneficial, you know, community of people who have gone through it before. Yeah. So if, if parents are saying, wow, because I mean, to me, and I couldn't, I couldn't tell you exactly what it is, but I can tell in my community when someone's describing their child, I can, it just, to me, it like sticks out when it's pants or pants. Yeah. I wish I could kind of articulate what it is about that. Mm -hmm. And I can actually tell when it's not, you know, not that I would say that to a person, but you know, I could tell that they're just looking, you know, they're going down that rabbit hole because for, I think for some parents, it's just more comforting for it to be quote unquote medical. I don't need to do therapy. My child doesn't have OCD. They're having a medical condition. And I really feel like it's sometimes it's both, you know, it's you have to treat both. both, isn't it? I mean, at, at yeah. least it's, I, I kind of feel like it's always both, right? Like, even if it is a medical condition, it doesn't change the need for behavioral strategies, right? Like, and I do think though, that is probably one of the, um, the things that, that are, let's see, holding back uh, the pans pandas community, but you fight so hard to, for people to believe that it's medical, that sometimes you forget that there are traditional therapies for some of these things that work. Right. And that need to be part of that, that overall picture of kind of how to get your, get your kid back for. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I do feel like, I agree with you. I feel like OCD is a neurological condition. You know, I feel like it has to do with the basal ganglia and what it is that's impacting that circuitry is different for each kid. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether it's neurotransmitters or glutamate or inflammation, but 
you know, that, that area that circuitry is implicated. And a lot of times it is autoimmune. It is um, a sickness. It is inflammation for whatever reason. Right. So where would a parent start? I know this is the trickiest part of this whole yeah. conversation. <laughs> right. Where, then where do parents go? Yeah. So I would hope that the, that they go to their pediatricians and, and when they go to their pediatricians, they might not get, you know, open arms and, oh, you know, like it, it has been caught up in a controversy for, for two decades of, is it real or is it not real? Right. I'm here to tell you it is absolutely real. Right. But some physicians, if they haven't, you know, been recently, maybe in school, didn't hear about it throughout school. And while that's not, they might not always get the answers from their pediatricians. I would hope that everybody would go to their pediatricians to one, to help raise awareness of the disorder for the next kid that comes after them, if they hear it enough, you know, but like for, for me personally, you know, I say I made a believer out of a pediatrician when it happened with my daughter and I knew she had strep and the pediatrician kind of looked at me like side-eyed, no, I'm sure this, that's not this. And I said, please just go ahead and test her. And they ended up, they actually tested her throat for pan, I mean, for strep, and she did not have it. And I was like, I'm telling you, she has it. She probably has it perianally because I'd heard some kids have perianal strep. And again, reluctantly rolled her eyes, but did the test. And she ended up being positive, treated her, brought her back to the pediatrician. And she was like a totally different child. And since then, that pediatrician has gone on to treat other children, right? And recognize other children. So as an advocate, my hope is that people go to their pediatrician, regardless of whether their pediatrician might be the final answer or not. I just think it's good for, you know, to collaborate with your doctor first when you can and kind of bring it up and bring up your concerns with your doctor. Yeah. And I mean, and, and be prepared that most pediatricians, one, may not know about it. And two, if they do, they might think that you're going to be a crazy parent. Right. You know? That's true. Yep. That, that's absolutely true. Unfortunate. And I mean, I feel like sometimes doctors will say to me, cause you know, I kind of go back and forth with doctors. They'll say, well, like a lot of kids, if you tested like a huge sampling of kids, mm-hmm. a lot of them will have high titers for strep because we all have strep in our body. It's, uh, strep is such a common sickness in childhood and adulthood that yeah. we're all kind of carrying some stuff and don't necessarily have inflammation. Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably true. The rebuttal would be, you know, if you treated those kids, would their neuropsych symptoms go away? Right. So, you know, it, it's obviously not medical advice. I'm not a doctor, but one of the things that often happens in our community is doctors will say, like to troubleshoot whether it's PANS or PANDAS related to do an, what's it called an Advil protocol. So you do Advil, uh, you know, every six to eight hours around the clock for a couple of days. And if you feel like, and any, anybody who is a PANS mom will knows exactly what this means when I say it, that you're no longer walking on eggshells around the house, right? Everything is not so explosive at home. It might be an indication that it's an inflammatory nature and that you could be dealing with PANS and PANDAS. And, you know, and Advil is not too invasive of a, of a trial. So I think that's what most conservative pediatricians kind of think is a first step to troubleshoot whether or not that's what you're dealing with. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. Sometimes it's like just, you know, antibiotics or Motrin and starting Mm -hmm. off with something and seeing if that, you know, for some people it, it is night and day and it's a drastic change Mm -hmm. for some of us, you know, myself included, it wasn't, you know, it was like a little helpful, but then you're back to square one and you're like, I don't know where to go with this, you know, at this point. And that gets frustrating. I would also say if your pediatrician is not open to it, you know, you can go to pandasnetwork.org and look at like providers in your state and see if there's somebody in your state. I would still vet them out because anyone could be listed on there. But I think getting a doctor that is educated in pandas and pans and willing to, to do those tests can be helpful. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's um, another organization called pacefoundation.org and they're actually running a, they've been supporting the efforts of their local clinic in Arizona to do an IVIG trial. And so their clinics are are all, you know, experienced pants and pants clinicians. That's all they focus on in their, you know, their, their practices. So is that, are you talking about like the CPAE clinics? Yeah, the CPAE clinics, exactly. So I'm going to probably butcher childhood, infectious oh, <laughs> autoimmune encephalopathy clinics. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. I wasn't even going to attempt that. <laughs> I know there's still one in Tucson and now there's one in Phoenix. Yep. There's one in Tucson, Phoenix, University of Arizona, UCLA, and Dartmouth has a clinic as well. 
Um, okay. So they're, yeah, so they're doing a large scale IVIG trial. And, and one of the reasons I became an advocate was when I first came in, all I had heard was if you could get, if you could just get your hands on IVIG, it would make it all go away. Right. You know, it, they called it one and done this one and done high dose IVIG, which is immunoglobulin treatment to treat the immune system that if you could, you know, you could do that that the symptoms would remit and and why can't we all just get our IVIG? Unfortunately, we did six rounds of IVIG and saw no um, symptom improvement at all, right? And we absolutely have PANS because we're, you know, respond beautifully to antibiotics and steroids, but IVIG didn't work for us. So they're doing a study, which I think is great because it's a very strict criteria on kids who very recently had their onset of abrupt onset, you know, OCD, um, and these other symptoms to see if it's a it's treatment and it's in it's in the third phase clinical trial which you know is kind of the gold standard so it'd be very nice you know to put that to rest of whether IVIG is an effective treatment for these kids. So the study is is really trying to figure out if you can catch it early enough if IVIG is like a, a really good frontline treatment is that what exactly yep okay and so is it just for people in Arizona or is it? Nope. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, um, I think they're actually getting another site internationally, but right now it's in the U S yep. So, and it's also outside of the CPA clinic. So Stanford is participating as well, as well as Harvard and mass general who has a clinic. Wow. It's so good to see all these like universities participating in pandas pan studies. That's good. Yeah, it's great. And I think it also helps, again, you go into your pediatrician's office and kind of bring some of that information. It's, you know, there's not just one doctor who doesn't take insurance anymore, right? Like it's growing to major centers, you know, across the country. And that's really definitely encouraging, you know, to, to our community. Yeah, I think that'd be really helpful. So if somebody is in the early phases of this pandas pans journey, so within six, Within a year, I think you said, right? Yeah, it was originally six months, but yeah, now it's within a year. So if you had this ab- abrupt onset of symptoms within the last twelve months, you would um, definitely be, you know, considered for for um, enrollment for this study. How do parents reach out or contact that study? Yep. So if they go to pacefoundationforkids.org, it's got all the details of the clinics to to reach out to directly. Okay, awesome. And I'll leave a link in the show notes so that um, people can have that. Because I think IVIG is often not covered by insurance. It could be tens of thousands of dollars, super expensive. And Mm -hmm. so to be part of a a study where if you qualify, it's free, one, that's amazing in and of itself, but two, to be followed by universities, you know, that Mm -hmm. are really studying this would be such a gift for your kid and a gift for the Panas Pans community. Absolutely. And what's really great about the study is there's no total placebo group, right? So everybody will get IVIG, right? So it would be a lot to have a kid go through a trial and not be able to get that treatment. But no matter what, both arms will at, um, at some point get IVIG. Yeah, is- that's great. Yeah, because that'd be really, that'd be really disappointing. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm in exactly. a study and like, we got a placebo and like, the trauma, you know, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And IVIG, I mean, is typically can be upwards of, you know, $20,000 per treatment. So it's, it's great opportunity for, for kids. Yeah. A lot of the pandas pans protocols, um, depending on what doctor you go to can break the bank. It's time we put help directly in our kids' hands, introducing crushing OCD course for kids and teens. It was way more helpful than all the other therapy we've ever done because we didn't really know what to do. So we weren't really doing it before. So the course helped to figure out what the exposures are and how to do them. We're not in therapy and find it really hard um, to find an ERP trained therapist here. Um, So we're currently with like the public health service, but again, they don't seem to be trained in ERPs. It's filled that gap that we don't have that was desperately needed. This was really well timed for us to use between therapists and to help us like start get off to a good start with this new practice. It was easy to use. Um, I was able to do it from my phone or also on the computer. There's different ages, you know, so there were younger kids, there were teenagers. And um, so that was really nice too, to have a variety of ages where it wasn't just geared towards younger kids or older kids. It was a nice variety. It's helpful for our kids to hear it from this like third party as opposed to just us saying it. I really like the offense and defense method. I love working on poking at OCD while it's sleeping. It makes it a little bit easier to do and it's 
kind of fun. <laughs> I'm planning on using it to work on my uh, fear of like holding or touching batteries and stuff like that. So it was really helpful and I think a lot of other kids would like it. I thought that I was like the only one who had worrying about the weather and stuff. And then there was somebody else on there who worried about the same thing, which was really helpful. Seems less scary to work on stuff now that I've watched this class and I'm more interested to work on it. I like trying to do more exposures still and going to, before I wasn't, I just didn't want to do them. I've worked on some of my bigger compulsions and been successful. I realized that it was helpful to do like the exposures before it was like really, really hard. It's still hard, but it's helpful to know that I need to do them. Before there would be a lot of battles about it. So it is definitely less loggerheads. Really, really good course and super helpful. Definitely would recommend this. It's really easy to follow. It's in nice bite-sized videos. I really like the worksheets that go along with it. And I think it's really helpful. To learn more about this course and register your child or teen, go to atparentingsurvivalschool.com. So I'm, I'm interested. I want to circle back to your story because I've never really heard your story. So you did six rounds of IVIG, I think you said. Yes, and, then, and then what happened? Well, nothing for us. Um, so that's kind okay. of thing. <laughs> um, you know, so so let me back up a little bit. All three of my children um, were born within the first year of life with MRSA on their skin. Doctors couldn't explain why they were all born years apart, even at different, um, you know, hospitals. And all three of them, I'd never had MRSA. My husband never had MRSA. What but is MRSA? MRSA, staph aureus. Yeah. So staph, you know, like drug resistant. Yeah. Um, and they were, you know, days old and, and had it. And so they had... Um, you know, just peculiar, you know, immunologists were working them all up because like, why do these three children all get, you know, these skin infections? Cause they got them over and over and over again. And then my son kind of progressed looking a lot like, um, he, he was ASD, right? So, so autism. And, but we would notice that whenever like he'd have an ear infection and we treat him for, uh, you know, his ear infection, that his, the symptoms that we were calling at the time, autism would disappear. And we were like, that's wow. just, bizarre, right? Like, how does that, that happen? There's actually a note when we got him evaluated for ASD that says, mom says symptoms wax and wane. And I had no idea what pandas was at the time. Mom says symptoms wax and wane and quote in quotes, no longer autistic when on antibiotics. And it wasn't until almost, <laughs> which is crazy, right? But it wasn't until a whole year later where we ended up, I ended up learning what pans, a pandas was, That's and it was like crazy. light bulb went off. I was like, oh, because he went through the restricted eating. And again, I didn't know what it was back then, but when he had a really bad round of strep, he lost 10% of his body weight, you know, six months prior to that kind of the light bulb went off and, and all that. So he had been sick for many, many years when we did IVIG. I think he was um, six when, when we did it. And again, like I said earlier, I kind of had some frustration with hearing that one IVIG would make it all go away, but I was seeing other children who, you know, had done IVIG and they were not getting better. And then I had other parents tell me, we well, have to give it six months because if you give it six months, then you're going to give it the full time where it's going to work. And so we did, we gave it six months, but we did not see any symptom improvement, unfortunately. And he had even had some, some markers, like he had a low IgG, right? So it showed that his immune system was, you know, weak in the first place, which IVIG, even outside of pandas is the treatment for that when you have, you know, low immunoglobulins. So it did fix his immune deficiency, but it did not, um, it, it didn't fix the, the pants and panda symptoms. Man, that's frustrating. Yeah. So is he still struggling? He's not. I mean, it, our story is, so he was sick for, he's 12 now. I would say 10 years we struggled with, you know, these, these symptoms that waxed and waned. And, you know, we tried treatments of steroids that worked really well until they didn't and antibiotics until they worked really well until they didn't. And this is, is going to sound very bizarre, but this is our story. So, it, you know, it is what it is, is there was another family. I, when I started my nonprofit for, to advocate on behalf of kids with pants and pants, I was living in Richmond, Virginia. And I saw that there was like an immense amount of kids in Richmond that seemed to have this illness, right? And people would say, well, that's because you're there and you started this advocacy. So of course the awareness is going to be there. But I always said, well, no, the advocacy went off like that because they were already there. And when I started the work, I just already had like, you know, 50 families that were all like, hey, you know, like, I think my kid has this condition. In, you know, having over the years running Facebook groups and, you know, doing the work with the, you know, the charity, 
a lot of kids would have onset when they'd move to Richmond or they would um, lose their onset if they moved away from, or lose their symptoms if they moved away from Richmond. And like Weird. I said, we, tr we tried everything and anything, you know, and nothing was working. And a friend of ours moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and he had a very severe kid. And I knew him for over a decade. And he was like, Jessica, I think there's something to it. Like he got better. And I'm like, really? And, and our family picked up and moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and all three of our kids got better. And that how so weird, so weird, how I have no idea. I have no explanation for it, but they did. They all got better. And like I said, my, my son was really, really sick for very, very long. And they all got better at the same time. Were they born there? They were born in Virginia. In Richmond, Virginia yeah. They were all born there with the, yeah. you know, the skin, all, like, you know, it wasn't exactly. those different States. Do you yeah. Have, like speculation. <laughs> I'm like fascinated yeah. by that. Yeah. So they go to, they go to an outdoor school, right? So they were homeschooled prior because they just couldn't handle being in school. So we thought as a, you know, go between before like trying to put them back in school that we would try this like homeschool co-op that was an outdoor school. And I was like, Hey, I'll give it a shot. We, you know, COVID had just happened and we were all tired of being inside. And I was like, all right, this is, this is an alternative. And I can't help but wonder if that has something to do with it, right? So they're in this beautiful forest, like, you know, like rolling around in microbes and playing in the dirt. And, you know, our world just, you don't do that anymore, right? And like, so there's a little part of me that wonders if their immune system just kind of rebooted as a result of being in nature. And and I, that's my, you say it's speculation, that's the best I got, but <laughs> that's all I can kind of think because they all three got better. Like it would be one thing if one of them got better, but they all had pans and with different severity. My son was very severe. So he's in sports now. Like he wouldn't leave his room before he plays soccer three days a week, pick a ball. He's in school. Like it's just a different, totally different kid. That's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I'm glad not for you, but I'm glad that you're sharing a story where it's not like, I just, it's a realistic story because I get it. You know, I feel like sometimes when we talk about pandas and pans, it's like, then they were diagnosed and then they were put on this antibiotics. And then like, they're completely better now, which I think right. does happen for a lot of people, sure. especially if you catch it early or there's something that is really causing active inflammation or an infection that you're treating. But I think a lot of us have like this, like no, no idea where to go. Like things are not helping. And you're like, I don't like my son. I feel like he clearly has pans. I mean, his, like he, he just checks every box. box yeah. He doesn't have flares though. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, Did he ever? It's hard to say because he had restrictive eating at eight months old after. Right. That's when it's hard is when it's so early. That's the same thing with ours. Like you're supposed to have this dramatic onset, but how do you find out if you have a dramatic onset in a three day old, right? right. Or an eight month old that that's what makes it tough with those early stages. It's for so sure. tough because I know at eight months he would only eat. He had an, an extreme strep infection at eight months old, wherein the doctor said he couldn't have strep. He's too young. And I said, please just, you know, swab him. And he did. And I think he had rogeria or like, you know, he had like the rosy cheek oh, yeah. at one point when he was four, he had another infection, but at eight months old, he ate banana yogurt and he would not eat anything else. Like no milk, no water, literally nothing for six months where I had to call the pediatrician and say, can a kid survive on like banana yogurt? Right. Like, well, I think like there's enough liquid in there, but I mean, I would fill up my target like shopping cart, like all the way to the top with banana yogurt because Gerber banana good. yogurt, that's all he would eat like four times a day. And so like, that was a lot of banana yogurt. But, and then just like six months later, it did resolve, just like disappeared. He was able to eat again. So there was that cycle right there. Yeah. But then it seemed like, you know, and then I think at like five, he had restrictive eating again, where we dealt with it. And then at eight, it came and it has not left. He's four, he's today's his birthday. So he's oh, 14 today. Yeah. And I feel like we get little reprieves, but yeah. it just feels like an ongoing problem. Right. Well, and that's the, the, those are the chronic kids. So that's where my son sat, sat for very long. And and I'm, I tell parents the same way that there's still hope because my son was that chronic. It stopped waxing and waning and had not waxed and waned for years until he got better. Right. Like, and I say all the time, had I known back then what I know now, I would have slept a lot more. Right. Cause I just, he was so chronic. I honestly thought it just wasn't, we weren't going to be one of the lucky ones that got out, right? Like that, that saw that healing. Um, and, but we did, you know, and it's, it's made me even more curious about like how this, you know, condition works and, and, you know, what, 
it's, it is so fascinating. Well, one kid, you know, gets better on this antibiotic and the symptoms reprieve. Another one does the exact same antibiotic and has, you know, and, and nothing happens. Right. And that's, it's why these studies are so important as well. Right. Like, so that we can try to subgroup out hopefully of kind of what treatments work. Maybe is there, are there certain set of conditions or timing that happen, um, you know, that make that, uh, you know, this treatment work for this child and, and not for this one. Yeah, I do feel like there's so many nuances and it's so much more complicated than my child had strep or didn't have strep or has an autoimmune issue. I feel like it's so complicated and we need that research and that research just hasn't been there in the past because people just disregard it as an option, which is so bizarre to me. And then COVID comes and everyone's, you know, inflammation is part of COVID and all of a sudden health issues are on the rise and, you know, big, you know, news outlets are reporting inflammation and mental health are, you know, there's a correlation. You're like, Oh, really? Right. Oh, <laughs> really? Exactly. I know. Talking yeah. news. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, no doubt. No doubt. So one of the things I didn't mention early on, but that I had worked on prior to uh, re- helping recruit for the trial is I created along with um, a Dr. Masterson, Erin Masterson is her name. She's um, a researcher that works at the University of Washington. So we launched this like large scale patient registry. I think it has roughly 3,500 children in it. And it's both siblings, healthy siblings um, and children and adults with PANS in hopes of kind of being able to do an analysis of subgrouping to see if there's any rhyme or reason to why these kids got better, these kids didn't, or, you know, this background, they have all these, you know, immune conditions and these ones don't. Because over the years, I started to notice that there was a lot of things that like parents were saying online, which is why my immediate reaction is, you know, go ask other parents that are going through this, where you weren't seeing it in the literature or hearing about it in the doctor's office, but parents were talking about it. It's like, yeah, my kid too. So like things like hypermobility, right? So I started to see that all these, a lot of these kids had, you know, severe hypermobility of their joints, right? So then the question is, you know, does that have anything to do with pans or pandas? And we don't know yet, but the hope is with the registry that there would be enough data that, you know, some researcher might want to take it on and say, Hey, you know, is there a correlation here that's worth studying? That's interesting. You also see like POTS, both my older daughter and my youngest have hypermobility and also slow digestion, you know, which I think sometimes comes with it. And so a lot of gastro issues with their digestion, there's a lot of medical stuff going on that you're like, there's gotta be a correlation between a lot of this. Exactly. Exactly. And and I think that's a lot of times when you don't see that classic pandas or, you know, where you think of those kids who have that severe onset and then they get better immediately with one IVIG or a long-term, you know, round of antibiotics is when they have a lot of those kind of that web of other stuff going on. Right. So what led, you know, that whole, um, analogy of the bucket, right. Is things keep on getting added to the bucket. And then pans is just this overflowing uh, of it where then you see this dramatic, you know, onset of symptoms. Yeah. And then you really don't know where to go with it. Um, not to be like, you know, the Debbie Downer on this episode, but I feel like, (laughs) like my son. So like, if you did an MRI of the brain, I was just doing some research on this because you think, okay, if there's inflammation in the brain, then you can do an MRI of the brain, but a regular MRI doesn't really show inflammation unless it's like just crazy. Um, I did see in my like very short research that there was a research study that looked at pans, pandas, brains, MRIs, but they, they had to it was like a much, it was a different type of, yeah. yeah, it was a, it was definitely a specialized MRI that our kids aren't going to be getting because my son is actually supposed to get an MRI in a couple of weeks, just because I'm being a really annoying parent. You know, I'm right. like, I don't, there's something wrong with him. And you're telling me that you're going to G-tube him if he doesn't get better. And I really feel like there's something physiological going on besides your, just your classic OCD, you know, right. and he's dizzy, you know, that's an added, but you know, the GI doctor, so he's dizzy because he's not eating. And I'm like, that's valid, you know, right. <laughs> but he ordered an MRI because I'm being annoying. Um, okay. Good and for you. <laughs> I know. I'm like, Oh, I can't wait. And this, where he's going is not pandas friendly. I know this for a fact, you yeah. know, and so, but they're good doctors there, but I'm, you know, I'm just like, we might have to shift our journey because I know there must be something in the file that says like crazy parent pandas. pandas. Oh yeah. Because they all look at me like they dismiss him very, very quickly, which is very frustrating. And everything always comes back squeaky clean. Nothing, um, uh, yes. nothing yes, wrong with this kid. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's, you know, it's sometimes people come back and they're like mad that they didn't see it in the labs. And it's like, that's, that's actually just more of an indication that the, it might be this <laughs> because like so often we can find nothing. It's, it's really is quite bizarre that, yeah, a lot of times the tests just come back inconclusive. Right. And, and yeah. everybody's like looking for that smoking gun of what the thing is. And it's, it's interesting because even when you do find something, then it's, well, a, a lot of kids have titers. And it's like, well, then what are we testing for? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Or what know? are we supposed to do with that? I mean, Right. You know, if it's titers, strep titers, okay, then you can, you know, do the antibiotics. And for those kids, it can really work if that was what's causing it in that moment. But kids like mine, Mm -hmm. where the inflammation is probably so microscopic, and obviously I'm not a doctor, so I'm not a neurologist, so I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm imagining it can't, unless you're looking for it, you're not going to find it. And then how do you treat that? And Motrin for long periods of time, didn't really seem right. to impact him greatly. And now his stomach is just ripped to shreds. So it's, it's tricky. Yeah, it, it really is. And I feel for you. I know, like I said, my, my three were, were sick from birth too. And it's, it is harder to tease out. I think when that happens, because it happened, you know, so long ago that I do think when it, when you have the onset sooner, the troubleshooting seems a little bit easier to me, at least of like what, what preceded this abrupt onset of symptoms that might, you know, be at at play here. Yeah. I mean, some parents will be like, you know, my seven-year-old was doing great. They're playing sports. They were smart. And then they woke up and they literally couldn't leave their bed or they're like, their hands are raw, like drastic, sudden onset. Like Mm -hmm. those are much clearer than the ones I think that are like our kids where it's, really from birth. I mean, for him, it's from right. since eight months old. And it's like, and there's really not a lot of intervention to do with that because then what do you do with that? It's not like we can treat him for mold or Lyme. Like these are other imp- things that are implicated in Pandas Pan's world. It's yeah. not like he's got an infection or we can't move out of our house. You know, it's like, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's tough. You, you know, it's, it, as you were t- talking about it, it's even more, cause I always used to feel like, you know, on the the media shows, like whenever you see anything about pandas and pans, it's the depiction of the kid that was a star football fl- player who then lost their you know mind overnight and, and then had this severe uh, onset of symptoms. And I actually think that that does a disservice to the awareness of pans and pandas, because then if you don't look like that coming into the doctor's office, it's like, well, it can't be that. Right. Or, you know, you've been dealing with that for so long, obviously it can't be that, but I would even go adventure to say that I think it's actually um, more common to not see that presentation than to see the one where there was nothing in the background ever. And then they had this dramatic onset of symptoms. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't, uh, it's interesting when we first got on, you were talking about it. I I don't have a history of what OCD and anxiety and ADHD and all that stuff looks like outside of pants and pandas. Right. So I only know what it looks like there. So I don't even know like how to compare. Right. Because while the, the criteria for pandas is supposed to be this abrupt onset of symptoms, again, as we just discussed, how do you tell that? And when it starts at eight months old, do you see differences? Like, you, you know, you deal with this all the time, right? So you say you can p- pick out a pants kid. Well, what makes it different? I'm glad you said that because I do feel like, you know, you say, go ask parents, go talk to parents. And and sometimes I'm like, eh, you know, all because right. <laughs> I have lots of large groups online and a parent will post something that's just like a basic OCD symptom. And then the parent will be like, that's pants. You should get them tested. That's pandas. And I'm like, really, where are you getting that from? It's good to educate people for sure. But there, it, to me, there is a difference. Again, I think it's the chicken or the egg on some level. I think like autoimmune issues in general can kind of cause, I feel like there's a big, I think OCD is caused by lots of different things, but there is a difference in, there's, comp- I think it's more of what's added onto it. And so you have the OCD mm-hmm. and then you have extra stuff. And so it's the extra stuff that makes me go, mm, you know, that's because someone who just has OCD, they're not always having rages. And like, there's the, the dysregulation with pandas is, and pans is on a different level. Like okay. my son's meltdowns are at a different level than my daughter's, you know, she gets mad, she gets upset, or she gets really upset with her anxiety or OCD he gets like blind rage. I can't reach him. That's a component that I tend to see is that, that just real spike in dysregulation that I don't see as consistently. Okay. Um, and obviously I'm not a pandas pants expert. So that's just my caveat right there. No, 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 that's okay. Um, but I also, that restrictive eating component is, is there with most kids with some sort of pandas pants, you know? And so, and that, that looks different to me. Like 
I can't even pinpoint why he's not eating at this point. It's like, and he can't even tell you, it's like his brain is just like, yeah, I can't do it. Um, where when I've worked with kids who have some eating issues and it's purely just in the OCD category, it's, it's like very specific, maybe like sensory thing. It could be yeah. sensory. My oldest daughter has sensory processing disorder. It was lumps and bumps and, um, she was failure to thrive. You know, she was definitely not eating. So she had RFID, but it, she also hated tags and she also hated her socks and she had no other symptoms of pandas and pants outside of, she had a sensory issue. So she had, she had SPD for sure. And then once we worked on that, she's, she's fine now she's 20 and she's eating and she's fine. You know, right. she's her struggles, but she's fine. But with him, you'll be like, why are you not eating? And he'll just be like, I just can't do it. You know, it's like, there's like a block in his brain. He'll have reasons. Sometimes he's afraid of choking. Sometimes it looks like a cartoon character. Sometimes it smells weird or it tastes weird. But I think that restrictive eating is there's like a, a way that it looks like, you know, I'm, it's hard to articulate. Obviously this is not yeah. like diagnostic criteria. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like, um, and then it, it impacts a lot of other physiological things. Sometimes they have acute separation anxiety. I don't know. I just think it looks different. So with people who have anxiety and OCD, there's just a look to it. You know, if you just have a child that's just hand-washing, that doesn't necessarily mean they have pants or pans or they're having, everything's contaminated or they have scrupulosity, OCD themes, you know, like they're not having any other symptoms outside of the, just the very classic OCD. Just the classic OCD. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're saying that it's really the, you think all the other symptoms alongside it and potentially severity of, of those. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's those added components. Like when mm-hmm. you look at, you know, math struggles at one point, my son's not struggling with math anymore. Like the handwriting going sideways, the mood dysregulation, yeah. the urinary incontinence. He he's had urinary incontinence forever the food restriction, the separation anxiety, the ticks, but all together. Cause you know, you can have someone who has OCD run in their family forever. That could be an issue with glutamate or the neurotransmitters or something totally maybe separate, still physiological, but not about pandas and pans. And I actually just lost my train of thought. That's okay. <laughs> I love that. Woke yeah. up too early today, but like, they're, they're not going to have like everyone in their family is going to have OCD symptoms and they're all going to, you know, it runs in the family and it all kind of shows up in the same way. They're mm-hmm. not going to necessarily have, that's what I was going to say. It's common to have comorbid conditions. So it is common for ADHD and OCD to be together. It's common for people with anxiety or OCD to have separation anxiety, but it kind of just looks different with pandas and pans. It's like all of a sudden they can't be away from their parent, you know, like they're intensely afraid, like they're immobilized and it just, it, an otter less clinical separation anxiety in the classic way. Mm -hmm. But I think that is the risky part is that parents hear one component like, Mm -hmm. oh, he has ticks and he has OCD. Have you checked out pandas and pans? Well, a lot of, that's a comorbid condition. A lot of kids, my daughter has ticks and OCD um, and anxiety, but really I don't think pandas and pans. It's messy. It's really hard. It really is. I'm sitting here thinking like, how would you tease that out? It is, it's messy. Yeah. I mean, I think if you are, if you're concerned as a parent, Mm-hmm. It's good to get a diagnostic workup. You know, it's the first step because you might be that parent where they go on antibiotics or they take ibuprofen or right. they're treated for an infection and they get better. The right. tricky part too, though, I think is those neural pathways are already then carved in and developed and you still have to treat the OCD therapeutically as well. The adjunct, I think it has to be medical first. Sometimes kids are so medically unwell that they really, they can't jump into ERP or anything like that. Like that's ridiculous. They need that medical intervention. But then I think sometimes people are so far in the pandas and pans world that they think, why would I need therapy when it's a medical condition? Medical condition. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was, I think I actually used to fall into one of those categories where I was like, it's medical. So once we fix the medical, you know, but it just makes sense that some of those things, if you're learning them, you know, throughout your life that I do this, even when the illness is gone, you still have this behavior patterns. I mean, I wasn't ill and I still hear my child whine over something like wanting a snack and my entire body goes into fight or flight mode, you know, because of my experience. Right. And so I need therapy too. Right. Yeah. (laughs) As a result. Right. So that makes sense to me that just because it's not, you know, or just because it is medical doesn't mean that you didn't still continue to do these behaviors over several years, that there's not going to be something you know, that needs to be, you know, reworked. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, with my son with who has pants, like, yes, 
I think he clearly has pans. We haven't found a smoking gun that we can treat. Um, and I kind of gave up on some level because I'm like, it's pans. And even when I would talk to colleagues, they'd be like, that sounds so physiological. I mean, even though I think OCD in general is physiological, mm-hmm. but it just felt so medical that I kind of just was like, I just, you know, you just to, to babysit someone eating 24 seven is so exhausting. Like you said, and you're just like, I don't want to babysit you eating anymore. But I think that a lot of times it can turn into a habit, like that restricted eating becomes who they are. And so they don't know how to eat. They don't know how to do a lot of things, whatever the OCD theme is. They just don't know how to move forward. Even when the medical aspect, we're not at this point, but when people have the medical aspect locked down, And the the medical aspect is, is doing better. The child still needs to do those exposures and learn how to move towards that discomfort, which is really tricky. Yeah, I I completely agree. Again, my son, we did uh, neurofeedback therapy. Um, And I don't know if this was just a flavor of the neurofeedback therapist that we were with, but he very much was like, if he's afraid of it, like he needs to run toward it, not away from it. Right. And it was definitely part of his, his healing. He could not, we saw therapists before that like, just like, he was like, you know, true phobia of um, playing with other kids. Like he couldn't play or his family of playing a game because he was afraid to lose. Right. Oh my gosh. That's my son too. Yeah. It's, it's tough. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, which is why I went, I was like, and he's in soccer. That doesn't seem like such a huge deal, but this is a kid that yeah. couldn't even play a card game with me, you know, um, yeah. but this, you know, see, that's um, interesting. You know, that's yeah. another, like, that's that dysregulation piece. Yep. And the neurofeedback, like having the therapy, even though he was healing medically, right. He still had been telling himself for however long that, you know, he's afraid of playing, let's say. So even though medically he was feeling better, he still had to have that, you know, even though it wasn't a a true, you know, CBT type therapy, we exposed him and short, we made him go sit at a soccer game. We made, you know, like until he got, and now he's doing all those things. So I I probably would have fallen into the category of someone who said, oh, it's all medical. Why do we need therapy for? But I learned through, through the, you know, school of hard knocks here that, you know, it humbled me to, to say that, yeah, that the therapy piece is, um, at least it was for us. It, it was, it was, a um, definitely a part of the overall picture of, of healing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I honestly feel like OCD is caused by something physiological, mm-hmm. um, and some things can't be, well, I don't want to say can't be fixed because hopefully with research, they'll figure out the right medications right. and the right treatment, whether it's an infection or whatever. But once those neural pathways are are there, that the OCD is kind of like taken over regardless of whether you kind of get things under control and then uh, teaching them to walk towards their discomfort once they're stable is, yep. is so important. So I think parents who are in the OCD world and don't know about panis and pans need to know about panis and pans because they're mm-hmm. missing something. I have a lot of parents who have said like, I don't know. I said, said weird. <laughs> like say it. They come to me, you know, I've, I get this feedback all the time. Like I didn't know about panis and pans until I heard you talking about it and I got tested and he clearly has this and we're down this road and he's doing so much better. And it's like, how many yeah. parents are missing that because they don't know about it. Yeah. Right. And so, and then I do want to just put a little, like, you know, get a little bit on my soapbox about the reverse that all OCD is medical. If we want to really argue that on some level and the therapy approaches are important too. I think kids with pandas and pans are sensitive to um, psychotropic medication. So that becomes, that's That's another reason why it's helpful to know what you're dealing with. Even if diagnostically they say, because it's not like they take a blood test and then they're like, oh, your, your child has pandas or pans. Um, Right maybe something pops up or maybe you're like me and nothing shows up and they it's not, not like they can even take an MRI and necessarily say something pops up, but at least, you know, like I know my son is not, he doesn't have the profile of just someone with OCD. He's got other issues going on. And so understanding the dysregulation, understanding the restrictive eating, like having an understanding of it and knowing like when I need to back off and be like, okay, well, he's just really not well right now. That helps. And then knowing that even though I, there's no medication I can give him or IVIG, I don't think would help necessarily. I don't know. I'm not willing to do six rounds of it for sure. At this point, you know? <laughs> right. Because I don't know, unless I really knew that, you yeah. know, there was an issue, but I do know, unfortunately by trial and error, that psychotropic medications are a no-go for him. I mean, he had activation syndrome and went off a cliff 
almost literally, you know? And so, yeah. And I would say that's, that is, you know, talking about, I, I almost feel like I'm failing a little bit on it. Like, how do you know your child has? Cause I'm like, you know, it, it's hard, right? Like it, yeah. to, to know, but there are things that while not there's certainly, it's certainly discussed in, in some research literature, but nothing validated in, in some of the pants and panda studies. But one of the majors is these kids really oftentimes cannot tolerate SSRIs or so, you know, those type of drugs in the same way that others can. So it's not that it's never part of the overall picture, but, you know, they say when you're going to do it, you got to go very low, like, you know, uh, one quarter of what you would typically prescribe, you know, and, and because they do seem to have this, this really severe, and I think that's super common in, in pants and panda. So again, to the parents out there, they're listening, wondering, like, could my kid, that's certainly an indicator that something else might be going on is when they're just really poor responders to, to antipsychotics, like, or anti, you know, anxiety or any, any of those meds, really, they have a, not all across the board, but certainly it appears that they have a, you know, a very difficult time with trialing them. Like there, my one pediatrician told me one time, I know, you know, I start thinking pans and pandas when we're on our third medication and they're just getting worse instead of like something actually hitting to alleviate any of the symptoms. Yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of kids, do go through like a zillion medications. I mean, that is kind of part of the journey of anxiety and OCD as well though. But I think it's the sensitivity that reactivation syndrome, you know, they become suicidal or they become self-harming or they become manic um, or impulsive. You're seeing like they're activated by it. And again, obviously I'm not a psychiatrist. So talk to your psychiatrist, but I know that I hear that a lot too. You know, like it is hard to verbalize what, what is the difference between pandas and pans and maybe your typical anxiety and OCD journey? Cause they do look very similar, but I think it's the add-on stuff. And that is another add-on. And I think that is the fortunate aspect of getting a diagnosis is, well, I want to be really careful with SSRIs. It's not that you're not going to necessarily have those prescribed for you. Um, we did some gene testing, which again is controversial as well, but we went through GenoMind and there's GenoSite. There's a whole bunch of them. And you have to take that, those results with a grain of salt. So a lot of doctors won't do it because they don't feel like the research is there yet. But I'm like, if I can have a little flashlight into what he's going to metabolize and what he's not. Right. Let's do it. That's how, why, yep. you know, after you have a child that went through activation syndrome and it took three months to get the smallest, smallest oh. dose of Paxil out of his system. I was like, I'm not giving him anything until I see a little flashlight of what to give him. And right. the results were like, just don't give him any SSRIs. And ironically, and I don't know why they tested for this. It said, don't give him Motrin. Oh, that interesting. He can't metabolize Motrin. And so I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, really? Those things can ha- kind of help because then there are other families of medications. But I mean, whenever I tell a psychiatrist, like, he's taking one fourth of what you're prescribing. They're always like, that's literally inconsequential. And I'm like, you don't understand. Right. Like, no, it's not right. Not exactly. For so not yeah. For him. Yeah. So um, this has been really helpful. I think it's just a great discussion for families to hear just the overall picture. I just wanted them to see the whole big picture of pandas and pans. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of families listening are at least under a year in their journey. And so if we can just talk again about that study, because until we get more research, families like myself are going to be, you know, barely treading water. <laughs> yep. The website is pacefoundationforkids.org. And it is a phase three clinical trial for IVIG treatment, which is said to be the gold standard for pants and pandas. Yeah. And I know, I mean, we, we went to CPAE a couple of times early in our journey until I realized, I don't think there's anything that we're going to be able to do. And I think it's fantastic, the work that is being done. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for being an advocate too. You know, as a mom, I just want to thank you because it's not too far out in your, it's like you are talking about your, you know, your adult 30 year old. Yeah. Well, I took a year off. So I, I was like all in and and I needed a year. I took a year and then I kind of started to get back into it a little bit. Once he started to feel better, I started to feel a little better, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I mean, there's just, uh, there's so many kids out there that are suffering and, and, you know, like we talked about, there's a, a lot that can be done, even in some cases where, you know, the, I think it's a, a tougher nut to crack, if you will again, from my experience is like, if we can heal, you know, I think there's hope out there for kind of everybody. Absolutely. And you can't heal if you don't know about it. So thank you for spreading the word. I appreciate it.
Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it too. Well, I hope that you found that interview helpful. I think I just enjoy talking to someone and being like, what can they do? My son has pants. What are we going to do? Because we're kind of in the thick of it right now. So um, I hope that you found it helpful for me to kind of just play devil's advocate and look at pandas and pants from all different angles. And I think it was really helpful to talk to a mom and an advocate who um, had, had seen it just through the medical lens. So her, the website that she was talking about, again, is pacefoundationforkids.org. They are still actively looking for kids in the study. And honestly, for anyone who has looked into IVIG treatment knows just how incredibly costly it can be. A lot of times insurance does not cover it. And to take advantage of a study, if you are in that sweet spot where you've been diagnosed for less than a year, definitely check it out because that would that could be such a big gift for some of you that just financially can't make that happen, but have been recommended to have IVIG treatment. Also, just a reminder that my survival series is going on until technically November 10th, but you'll have the weekend to watch the replay. And you can sign up for that at atparentingsurvivalseries.com. I hope that you're finding this podcast helpful. I hope that I'm sharing information that you didn't know before and getting you to think about different things. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget to hit a star and rate it on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever you watch or listen. I don't know why I always say watch or YouTube. (laughs) Actually, my podcasts are on YouTube now. Or if you have some extra moments, don't forget to leave a review. I greatly appreciate that. So don't forget to find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.